experience if you if you had witnessed somebody trying to hang themselves were there any counselors who were then brought on to the site not at all people were desperate to receive uh, mental support mm. there was nothing at all I mean uh, we always say I mean there were some people who were just ears we could tell them like migrant help or there was a staff who, who used to come to do welfare checks but they couldn't do anything. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. This is the first in our Solidarity Knows No Borders series, which is brought to you in partnership with Migrants Organized, where we speak to people who currently have an asylum claim. Today, our focus is on the controversial Napier barracks, and I'm delighted to be joined by somebody who's got experience of having lived in Napier barracks for for four months. So welcome, Amir. Thank you so much for having me. Right, so this is um, going to be a very difficult episode and our audience obviously have heard a lot about Napier barracks and the government introducing this type of uh, accommodation. So just by way of ba- of background, Napier Barracks is um, a disused army barracks that Pretty Patel has decided to bring into to house people who've come to Britain to seek asylum. So Amir, talk to us about the circumstances that led the Home Office to move you from a hotel room to Napier Barracks. Um, so if I want to begin by uh, I'm explaining my journey, I have yeah. to say that I claimed asylum uh, on September last year and I was uh, accommodated in a hotel room for uh, three weeks. Okay. And then one day in the morning, the reception of the hotel called me and said I'm going to be transferred to another place uh, today. And they didn't tell me where to. And in that situation, I'm... I'm uh, I was really anxious because you cannot really predict where you're going to, mm. um, whether it can be a detention center or it can be your next type of accommodation, a dispersed accommodation. Okay. So I um, um, had my belongings and I went out and I saw the taxi driver mm. and he didn't respond to my question where we are going to. And I just found out that we are going to Napier Barracks as soon as I saw the sign on the road that you're heading to Folkestone. Well, that's that's shocking. So you, you ask where you're going to and there's there's no response. Yeah, I remember I asked the driver where we are going to and he didn't respond. And the hotel reception then asked him where you are taking these guys to hmm. because I was with another uh, person. And uh, he, he whispered in his ear where we are going to. And then I realized the place we are going to is not a good place because he whispered in his eyes and he avoided responding to my question. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they had the fear that maybe I'm going to flee if they if I realize where we are going to. Mm. Oh, Even yeah. then, uh, Napier Barracks didn't have a good reputation. Yeah. Did you did you know of anyone 
who was in your hotel who had been taken to Napier, to Napier Barracks before you were there? I just, I just saw some uh, videos on social media about the conditions inside, mm. uh, which was shared by some asylum seekers. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't know much more about it. Okay, so, so talk to us about your, your first impressions when you arrived at, at the place. Well, what, what are you confronted by? So the first thing you feel when you when you go to Napier Barracks as an asylum seeker, you feel you are a prisoner because the facade, the, the conditions of the camp, it's totally look like a prison. Mm. Um, and at some point, at some point, it's it's even worse than a prison. Uh, you are always uh, uh, being watched by the security guards. There are fences all around you. So if I want to let you picture the place, if you haven't had the chance to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a disused army camp, and it has around twelve to fourteen blocks, which used to accommodate uh, twenty eight people in total. And each block has two toilets and two showers for twenty eight people. So in total, four hundred people are living in that army camp, and we we used to share uh, the dining the dining room, dining area, communal dining area, which uh, which could uh, uh, accommodate uh, something around 200 people at once, eating mm-hmm. food and uh, sharing meals with each other. And when you are eating food, you are not able to wear masks or practice social distancing altogether. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, COVID-wise, it was extremely unhygienic and uh, not, not COVID-compliant at all. And uh, it was a mass accommodation that so many people were living with each other. And also, you everything was disciplined your times of going out coming in the order of um, different activities uh, receiving meals mm. so it it was totally looked like a prison for me hmm so talk, talk to us about the the dormitory uh, accommodation you say that there's 28 people that would sleep in in one dorm yes uh, so each block which accommodate 28 people uh, is divided in two sides, the northern side and the southern side. Mm-hmm. And each side has around 13 to 14 people. And um, they, so, well, they're So what's bed. that like? Is that just beds that are, are next yeah, to each other? Yeah, it's a bed and um, a closet. So, and, and they are divided by wooden partitions, which are open from the top. So you are basically breathing the same air. And um, there, in the beginning, there wasn't, there was nothing in front of the beds to like secure some kind of privacy. So people had to attach some blankets to uh, cover their um, their private space. Uh, mm. But after a few months, they had they they uh, kindly put some curtains to secure some kind of privacy. Yeah. Wow. Did you did you feel like you had any form of privacy even after they? Oh, not at all. I mean, it's, uh, you, you don't have any kind of privacy when you're staying at Napier Barracks. I mean, uh, you don't have the choice to turn on or turn off the lights when you want to sleep. Someone wants to, um, I don't know, call his family members or uh, wants to read a book and mm. they have to turn on the lights and you want to sleep and you cannot turn off it. And you cannot open the window because it's Sometimes it's cold for another person, sometimes hot, but not for another person. And um, you you cannot secure 
your belongings. I mean, you don't you don't have any choice but to leave them just in your private space, which is not secured. Um, and yeah, you, you don't have any private or personal uh, surroundings with, with you. Yeah, I mean that's that's remarkable. So I'm I'm trying to imagine how then you feel safe or or secure or how your belongings become secure. What sort of rules were in place to try and you know, try and make you feel safe and to try and get you to think your belongings were secure? And there's no way that you can feel safe. Um, I mean, it, it's a, it's a, how it works in um, prisons. I don't know. I, I've never been in a prison, mm. technically, but um, you have to build and maintain some um, friendships or relationships with others mm-hmm. to um, protect yourself or otherwise you are going to be left out alone. Um, I don't know how uh, creating social bonds works in, in kind of this kind of uh, environments, mm-hmm. but uh, we really had to be um, cautious about our belongings or um, creating some kind of bonds with others to uh, make sure uh, that everything's going to be fine. But mm-hmm. you, not at all. You're not going to be. You're not going to feel safe at all. It's it's not possible. So, in terms of the staff who are there to to assist you, because all of the people who are in Napier barracks have have made an asylum claim, and will have experienced some form of trauma, and are here because they're fleeing conflict. What what did the staff do to assist you? Because I imagine that that type of environment that you describe, it's a tinderbox for for conflict. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. We had asylum seekers who came from um, war-torn countries or fled from persecution or have uh, experienced terrible things on their way to the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of them were actually struggling mentally. um, and we had some uh, suicide attempts uh, in, in the camp. So you have to consider the fact that these people were dealing with so many problems uh, when they they were willingly tried to take their own lives. Um, but there was no mental support for the people inside, no psychologists or social workers, etc. Um, there was only one nurse on site, and he wasn't adequate for the mental needs of um, the asylum seekers. We had, I mean, there, there, was, there was one option and people could reach out to migrant help and complain about their situation or mm-hmm. uh, any issue they have. And the migrant help would, would contact the, the staff of the camp to uh, check on us. Hmm. You and talk about, you've, you've said there that there's some people who are self-harming and that there was only access to a nurse. There, there was no form of counselling service of any sort, or were people allowed to leave the camp and go and seek some assistance at an NHS hospital? No, there was no way um, that you can see someone, say, to see an expert out of the camp. Um, the, the nurse on site should refer, to you, refer you to anyone outside of the camp, so in order to link you up with... Uh, a psychologist or a dentist or another doctor, you had to be checked first by that nurse. Um, and I mean, mental health wise, there was no support at all. 
so that the, the staff on site would do some welfare checks, like asking you some questions and then refer the questions and our answers to migrant help. And we have to bear in mind that those staff weren't trained and were not really aware of how to deal with kind of with this kind of uh, issues, how to respond to people in difficulty. And um, I imagine that they also uh, went through a lot by hearing um, terrible stories of asylum seekers. Mm, so you, you don't think they had any form of training, but generally, what were they like? Were they, what, what were the staff like? Most of them were uh, students, students who came here to study in the UK from other countries. So they were working um, uh, according to their student visa. Um, they, they weren't like citizen here. Or, yeah, is is that most of the staff? So most of the staff are people who were born in a different country who had come to study here. Yeah, exactly. So they had no idea uh, about the asylum system here or who the asylum seekers are and uh, they had no idea what these people have been through and asylum seekers in general well that is that is remarkable it's extraordinary that they wouldn't have staff who are trained in an environment you say there was 14 blocks which held 28 people per block and there's that large population of people who probably most are traumatized and they don't have trained staff no, not at all, no. Well, that's, I find that extremely shocking. Um, were you able to leave the barracks at any point that you, that you wished to? So say if you wanted to, because Napier Barracks is in Folkestone, if you wanted to go out into the city centre to maybe purchase some stuff, how, how did that work? What, what were the rules? Uh, we were able to leave the camp uh, before mid January and before the COVID outbreak, uh, we could leave the camp um, um, in, uh, during the day and we had to come back again before 10 p.m. at night. Oh, so you had a curfew, uh, right. Yeah, but after the COVID outbreak, uh, we were um, legally illegally detained. So we were kept in the camp uh, for one more than one month, uh, I, I imagine. Uh, because the COVID outbreak was going on in the camp, so they didn't let let, let us leave the camp. Okay, so let's let's talk let's talk about that that COVID outbreak, which has been widely reported. How how did that arise? Were were they regularly testing people? And when they tested somebody, you say that there's this dormitory accommodation. So were there places where those people could isolate if they tested positive? First of all, I have to mention that before the COVID outbreak, hmm. there was no testing at all. So people who were newcomers to camp would be accommodated among other, the, the former residents, uh, the, the people who previously were living in the camp. There was no isolation room for them um, and there was no testing. The testing just took place after the COVID outbreak. So it was on mid-January that... Uh, we heard from the camp manager that in one block, it was block five, that they had five to six positive cases mm -hmm. and they had to isolate that block. They put fences around that block. Okay. And uh, after one or two months, uh, they removed the fences and we asked them why you are removing the fences. And the camp manager told us that um, the camp is like a big house. Mm -hmm. So people are free inside of their house. They should be free 
inside of the camp, uh, which is their house. And then, then the positive ones mixed with everyone. And uh, one week later, uh, half of the population of the camp became infected with COVID. And we just realized that half of the population became infected uh, just after removing the fences, like a few days after removing the fences, they uh, asked some um, uh, healthcare workers to come and test uh, the population inside of the camp. And that was when, uh, that was when we saw uh, testings uh, taking place in the camp. Before that, there was no testing at all. Oh, and I and I understand that you you caught the virus and suffered from it quite badly for three weeks. Do you, do you want to talk to our audience about about what that experience was like and what kind of assistance you you got within the camp? Yeah, so the block that I was living in, um, firstly, two or three of my uh, friends in the same block uh, became infected. And they they were they, they had high temperature, and they had uh, pain in, in in their chest and ribs, and they couldn't really go out and collect their meals. Mm-hmm. So in the, the beginning of uh, the outbreak, we had to still go to the dining area and collect our meals, and um, I had to collect for three or four people at once, and I alone had to do that mm-hmm. uh, and uh, deliver the food to their rooms. Why is but, that? Is that because the staff wouldn't do it? Yeah, they wouldn't uh, deliver it. I mean, it, we are talking about the first week of the outbreak. Mm-hmm. It changed after a few weeks, but uh, in the beginning, they they couldn't uh, deliver the food to our blocks, and we weren't allowed to sit inside of the communal dining room. So we had to go to dining room, collect the food, and eat it in our own block. And um, I had to collect the food for uh, two or three of my friends who were infected. Mm-hmm. And after two or three days of uh, doing this routine, I, I just failed, uh, feel, uh, felt that I'm so fatigued, energyless. Mm-hmm. And it was like a flu or um, severe cold. And then after a day, I just couldn't really stand up and moving around. Uh, I had pain in my head, uh, chest and ribs. And I was so fatigued. Uh, if I wanted to go out to breathe some fresh air and the work, uh, and come in again, mm-hmm. I couldn't do that at all. Uh, I would <laughs> lose all my energy. And uh, uh, it was a painful few weeks, uh, more than one week, like just lying on my bed, laying on my bed, and uh, I could do nothing. So you you weren't moved to an isolation block. You remained in in the same place where you used to sleep ordinarily. Yes. So when the COVID outbreak happened, when they said that there are positive cases among the residents, yeah. they, they there was a hall in the camp which used to be uh, um, which used to be a place that uh, asylum seekers could uh, do activities like playing cards or watching TV. They evacuated that place. They removed the, the chairs and everything, and they put some beds in that uh, big hall. And they tend to accommodate the, they wanted to accommodate the infected ones in that hall. Mm-hmm. But then the number of infected ones were so high that even that hall was not enough for them. So they just, uh, um, they just thought it's not really, uh, practical to move the infected ones to that hall. And, uh, yeah, we were, we were all staying in our own block after a while. 
Okay, so do they bring any medical staff to to cater for the large numbers of people who who had infections? Because that seems like a very very reckless way of dealing with an, a COVID outbreak. Were people able yeah, to go to to hospital? Uh, not at all. Um, I mean, I personally didn't expect to be moved to a hospital, but at, at least I I expected someone to ask me how I feel if I need anything mm. or if I need any kind of medication. And but but nothing happened. It's like I was laying on my bed for one or two weeks, and uh, no one came to check on us. Uh, not only me, but also everyone. Uh, in our block, there were something around like five or six positive cases with 10 negative cases sleeping next to each other and breathing the same air. And still only having two bathrooms for 24 yes. people. Yes. Even yes. during the outbreak. Yes, even during the outbreak. So they, they provided some uh, extra toilets. One of those, uh, they can like move yeah, around. The mobile, the mobile toilets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, some of them were broken and some of them were uh, uh, really filthy to use. So there was no way we, we could clean the area. And after the COVID outbreak, uh, it became worse. Goodness. Did you did you at any point fear for your life? Because if if you don't have access to a doctor or a nurse and you can't go to hospital and you're in tremendous pain, who who could you speak to about that? Were you able to call your your family back home? Uh, to be honest, uh, even when I was infected with the COVID, um, I couldn't really believe that this is happening uh, to us in the UK. Because it's always like you feel that in a country like United Kingdom or any, I mean, most of the European countries, mm. you are recognized as a human being because uh, you're a human, basically, and people uh, behave towards you according to the human rights. And I, and I, and I could see that there is something wrong, mm. but I couldn't feel what is wrong with this kind of behavior, why we are seeing this kind of attitude towards uh, towards us, ourselves. And uh, I couldn't really believe that it's happening. It was really surprising for me. And uh, yes, of course, I was really concerned about my well-being and life at some point, because uh, apparently uh, they, didn't, they didn't really care about us. The people who attempt, uh, who wanted to commit suicide, mm -hmm. uh, they committed suicide and they, they were still kept in the army camp. Uh, I have no idea if they were referred to as psychologists or if... Uh, These are if people were who were was, was self-harming. So people who were self-harming were not being referred to, to hospitals outside the camp. They were being kept inside. Well, if the injury was severe, they would go to hospital. Right. But after that, they would move back again to, uh, to the camp. So they would still be kept in the camp. Even after... The Even they would bring in them one back. case, um, the block next to mine, one person tried to hang himself, and he moved. He, he was moved to hospital, and a few days later, he was moved back again to the camp. And uh, he, I think, he lived in the camp after uh, after moving from hospital for a few weeks, like up up to a month, maybe. 
<clears throat> and for the for the rest of the residents, was there any support? Because obviously, this a, a tra- traumatic experience. If you if you had witnessed somebody trying to hang themselves, were there any counselors who were then brought onto the site? Not at all. People were desperate to receive uh, mental support. Hmm. There was nothing at all. I mean, uh, we always say. I mean, there were some people who were just ears. We could tell them, like migrant help or those staff who used to come to do welfare checks, mm-hmm. but they couldn't do anything. So nothing was ever done. You you yeah. have a conversation, but things remain the same. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really shocking to hear that people can be dehumanized in, in that way. So what? Uh, I'm struggling to, to understand how, how, how do you feel about this? <laughs> I think, I, I uh, think you Amir. understand how I used to feel. I also, I, I was also really confused. Like, yeah. I couldn't really believe that this is happening. This yeah. was, this is something that you usually see in movies or read in the books, but not that I, that you feel, feel it, live it directly. Because hmm. I, I don't know how to, to sort of even, even express in a very clear way what I'm, what I'm thinking at this particular moment about what you'd have been going through. And how your life, like you're lucky, you're lucky to be alive. Because it doesn't look like there was a support system around you. Not at all. I mean, uh, um, uh, you should imagine that these people, asylum seekers, come to UK to seek safety and refuge. Mm-hmm. So what happened that what happens that those people who seek, who seek refuge and safety wants to do self-injuries? Uh, who wants to commit suicide. So you have to understand that the situation is so bad that they willingly want to take their lives, mm-hmm. uh, even when they are living in the UK. Yeah, it, it does seem like a really extraordinary set of, of, of circumstances. There was a fire at the place whilst you were, whilst you were living there. Can you talk to us about how that, how that came about? Uh, yes, it was uh, during, so when, when the COVID outbreak happened, uh, they tried to isolate us in our, own, in our own block. So we had to stay in our own block for, I can't, I can't exactly remember, it was seven days or 10 days. Mm-hmm. And then after 10 days, uh, they, they, they informed us that they are going to do this approach, they follow this approach to isolate us in our own block. But after that, uh, when the, the residents realized that they are not going to be moved out, mm. they start they started the protest. So we had several protests inside of the camp mm. uh, in, in protesting about our conditions and uh, that there is no response to our complaints. So this was a protest as usual. Mm. But um, I, I was really ill with COVID, so I, I didn't see the protest. In person, but I the, was the fire wasn't there. in your block. Sorry, what? The fire, the fire wasn't in your block where you were. Where no, you were fortunately, Ill. it wasn't in my block. But I was, I was getting rest in my block, and then uh, a friend of mine came and said that one block is on fire. So I, I went outside and I saw the huge flames uh, in that block, and um, I really don't know what happened. I, I didn't see. At all, but uh, yeah, it was a it's, it was a horrific uh, scene 
and and there was smoke uh, everywhere. Uh, you could see the huge flames, and there was no sign of uh, security guards or the staff. They all um, fled the camp. So it was just asylum seekers in the camp, fire and firefighters from outside. Hmm. Wow. It's you know from everything that you're saying, it it does feel as though you were just being treated as though you're just a number of you know the four hundred people who were there. And you weren't yeah. seen as a person at all. Well, we we were referred by numbers. I mean, you were um, referred to by numbers. Yeah. Um, so we all had a number. The number was, but the number belonged to our rooms. So we were called by the numbers, and um, I didn't really notice it. Notice that. But uh, when one one of the staff members came to me and said, "The camp manager wants to talk to you." Mm-hmm. And I went to the camp manager's uh, office, and then he asked me, "What are you doing here?" And so you called uh, me to talk, and he said, "Oh, your number is yeah." I I summoned this number to talk to him, mm-hmm. so I realized this person is not doesn't know me by my name or by my face. He just wanted to talk to this number, and whenever you wanted to collect your meals, you would tell your number. Whenever you wanted to leave the camp or coming back again to the camp, you would say your number. So you're you're always a number inside, and um, yeah, this is one of the one of the things that made me feel that how much I'm dehumanized. And um, after the COVID outbreak, uh, when when people realize that there's a huge COVID outbreak in the camp, one one day in the morning that I woke up. Uh, in early in the morning, around seven or eight a.m., mm-hmm. um, one of the security guards came to me and asked me if I know anyone outside of the camp, any journalists or any activists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I asked him why. Uh, he said because the situation is really bad here, and we don't know how to control it, and the Home Office is not responding to our uh, complaints, uh, our questions. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what what we can do. So can you tell the journalists or people outside what is happening here? It's so tragic. And I felt, I felt like even security guards, even the, the staff mm-hmm. have no idea what they should do. And that made me really shocked that, we, that the people who are controlling us, the people who are managing the camp, mm-hmm. have no idea how they should do it. So I just felt that how unsafe I am in that moment and how... Uh, dehumanized African. I mean, it, that that is remarkable because I think most people will will have watched like Hollywood movies where prison guards generally refer pe- to people by their number. But you've you've experienced this here in the UK where you've come to seek protection that you're being referred to as a number. What what yeah. lasting impact does that have on you? Do you do you think about it a lot or? Well, it, it really affects your uh, self-confidence or um, self-appreciation. You because because when I when I was in uh, Napier Barracks, I constantly felt how how I, how they criminalized me, how they had criminalized me, how they had dehumanized me, mm-hmm. and I, I always asking myself what I have done wrong, what crime I've committed that they are uh, doing this to me. So you always feel that you, you've done something wrong. You, uh, you're in a terrible position because you've done something terrible. 
and uh, yeah, you just you just even now after after several months that I was moved out from Nigeria, I still suffering from the consequences of being dehumanized. I don't have that uh, self confidence to go forward and talk to people, introduce myself, mm. or uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I find it really hard. I think the people who um, who are coming from who have experienced so many terrible things mm. I f- find it even more difficult to overcome the, the consu- consequences of being in the camp are you are you getting any support now are you are you able to see a counselor or somebody um, who can assist well, well, when you I with your moved, mental health my, yeah uh, when, I, when you are moved to your dispersed accommodation mm. the amount of support you can expect to receive is is I mean, I'm, I'm saying it's not the best, but it's definitely better than APA barracks. So you have the access to contact your GP directly and you can, uh, you can see a psychologist if you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that is definitely better than APA barracks. Right, okay. So let's talk about post being out of Napier barracks. But initially, tell us, what did anyone tell you give you a reason why you were then being moved out of Napier Barracks. What happened there? How did you end up leaving and now just being accommodated in in an ordinary housing? So um, after the COVID outbreak, they began to reducing the numbers of asylum seekers in the camp. And uh, they, um, I mean, day by day, they would just decrease the numbers. Is, is it the, were, they, they, were they removing people because they had suffered from COVID? No, it was just they wanted to uh, evacuate the accommodation so they can sanitize it and fill it, fill it in with, with next residents. So because it was un- uncontrollable, they couldn't really control the, the COVID inside. Uh, uh, technically, everyone was in danger, uh, staff, the, res- the residents. And they, you couldn't really isolate the infected ones and protect the negative ones. It was out of hand, out of control. So they had to finally remove the residents uh, and uh, sanitize the place. Mm-hmm. So it was on early February that one morning, uh, <laughs> again, my uh, camp manager came to my block yeah. and didn't know my name. He said, uh, number 540. And I say, that's me. And say, okay, you are going to move out. You're going to uh, go to your next accommodation. Wow. And uh, that was one of the, one of my happiest moments that I'm uh, finally leaving the prison, that, that horrible uh, accommodation. Mm. And yeah, I, I felt really happy when I heard that. Yeah, I can imagine. No, it's a sort of freedom, isn't it? Um, getting is, out of is. all of the surveillance cameras, the security guards, the eight-foot <laughs> fence. Exactly, exactly. No, uh, when I was leaving, I mean, I, I, I was in the camp for four months, but when I was leaving, it, it seemed that I was there for a few years. And uh, when I was on the car uh, on my way to the next accommodation, I was... I was looking at the people, at the cars, the buildings, the parks, mm-hmm. and I was appreciating everything that I lost to see when I was in Napier. Uh, the normal life, 
uh, we were really isolated when, when we were in the camp and we lost the chance to communicate with people outside. Mm. And now I, after, after four months, I, I just felt that I should appreciate this moment. And it's a really difficult question for me to ask you, but I, I feel as though it will, the people who listen to this podcast will benefit from the answer. Because you're, you're here to seek protection and to seek, you know, help and you, you want to live um, a normal life where you're free to express yourself. What do you feel like now, given you flee a country where there was conflict and then you arrive here and you're treated like a criminal and made to live in prison-like conditions? What's your overall feeling now? Of having come uh, here. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's also hard for me to answer. Um, it, I, I really have mixed feelings about it. Mm. So, of this country, people of this country who were supportive, who were super helpful and kind uh, towards me and other asylum seekers, and that made me think that uh, the policies are not necessarily representing the people of this country. The hostile environment is not representing the, some people of this country, the majority of the people of this country. And um, I, I always want to see United Kingdom as my next home country, as my new home country. And uh, I think being in Napier prevents me to feel that, uh, prevented me to feel that. And it was a barrier for me to integrate um, to the society of this country. But now I'm more optimistic and hopeful after being moved out. Um, and I hope that most of the asylum seekers uh, uh, really feel that opportunity, have the opportunity to, to integrate to society because I think this, this nation has so many things to be proud of and, and Napier Barracks is not one of them, definitely. Yeah, no. Um, on that note, Amir, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and I wish you the best of luck with your asylum claim. Thank you so much. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at CARAG Coventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.